RadioInfluence.com. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to the Friday edition of the Dark Delight Podcast with Beans. I am alone today, everyone. <laughs> just on our little uh, bonus content pre-show that I do, I just told everybody how much I despise being alone on the show. But we're going to do it today. Mike needs his day off. Frank is still not feeling well. He's almost there. For everybody who's worried about Frank, he's on the other side of it. He's coming through like a champ. He's going to be fine. He just had a little bit of a bout of some nastiness that he got through, but he'll be back with us next week. So today you're stuck with me. You're stuck with me and the fence guys putting up the fence in the backyard. You're stuck with them, too. So if you hear some sawing, that's what it is. I've been waiting for this fence for over a year since I well, it's a, I mean, yeah, over a year, pretty much. So the fence is finally, finally going in. Thank you, Joe Biden. So there's a bunch of things to talk about today. I don't know, as usual, when it's a solo show, how long we will go for. Let's start by revisiting Wednesday, where um, I asked you guys if you found the little short snippet that I did about American, about the Devil's Playground, what I've termed the Devil's Playground in Ukraine. Interesting. Then I wanted to know that, so I would know if I should focus more time on presenting it to you in a more detailed manner. And I was absolutely blown away by the response from you guys. Fan-freaking-tastic. Thank you. So Susan, who I love so very much, has stepped forward and is working with me on that infographic we talked about on Wednesday. Yesterday, I spent the entire day compiling information for that thing. I got to tell you, I, I was like, okay, here's what I had, which was extensive. And then I'm like, I'm going to break it into three acts, for lack of a better word. So act one would be 2014 through 2016, the beginning of 2016, which would cover like the 2014 coup, the Soros involvement, how he had such a stake there, the, the, you know, some of the other global sort of transitionings, the appointments of the ambassadors, who they were and stuff like that. Which it, it's it's cumbersome, but it's it's not terrible because I'm I'm being very strict about how much I'm including of what I do have. So I re I reread everything that I had pulled over the past like six weeks that I've been working on this, and I prepared that, and then I started in on the DNC Hillary Clinton campaign early priming of the field from a Ukrainian perspective. And I started realizing that I had forgotten to look somewhere. And so I started looking there and I was brought to, which I'm going to be including, obviously, I was brought to this major piece that ties so many things in that I had had separately, which it's just, it's just beautiful from Jeff Carlson at the market watch market works. I'm sorry where he used to write, wait, like before he started writing for Epoch Times. And I'm reading this piece and I'm like, whoa, whoa. So I was like, there were three or four things in there that I did not grab. And he has done fantastic work. So obviously I'm going to, you know, credit him for the things that I did not find on my own. But it just, the two facts in here, that I found that took it to another level for me inside my own brain 
was the connection between Newland and Christopher Steele. I had forgotten because I feel like I'd forgotten more than I more. I have forgotten more than most people know about Spygate. It, it's insane. Like, for example, I started reading the Mueller report again because obviously they framed, quote, Manafort in there. So I started reading it again and I'm reading it and I'm like, wow. I said, even even while then we knew this whole thing was a bag of flaming horse manure. Now, looking back at it now, after all more time has passed, the the horse manure, it stinks like it's just so gross. Ugh. I don't even think I can use a more like hoity-toity, disgusted voice to explain it. It is so bad. It is so bad. Like, the abject lies in the Mueller report. Like, even worse now that we know more. Oh. Goodness me, oh my, what a cover-up operation that was. A a political witch hunt cover-up. Anyway, I had forgotten, I don't know how, but I had forgotten that the State Department first took the Steele dossier. And I don't know how in the hell I could have forgotten that knowing the Hill-Steele connection. Whatever the case may be. This is why I'm scared to do this infographic. Number one, now I'm on a completely different rabbit hole that I think I might be able to actually nail some things into the into the wall with. But number two, if I forget something, that would be bad. Or if I don't include something, that would be bad. And this is the problem that I always have. Um, so that's why, anyway, that's why it took me so long yesterday. So I started digging through what I had left of my old notes um, because of the fire, which was very little. Um, I had so much material that I lost when everything burned down because I'm not a big fan of the cloud. And I had everything on external hard drives. And I had one external hard drive off-site, but I hadn't done a recent backup of it. So when I retrieved that one drive, it didn't have everything that I needed on it. So... I've been doing a lot of work on this and I've, I've basically buried myself in this office and I will deliver to you and I will pepper in. I'll keep this going because it was so beneficial to so many people. Um, I'll keep this going over the next week or two and hopefully by next week sometime, maybe the end of next week or early the week after, I will have a very pretty well done thanks to Susan infographic for everybody to use and share. And that would be fantastic. Um, Next thing that, um, where did I want to go next? Well, let's talk about Elon Musk, shall we? Elon Musk. I said yesterday morning when I saw that Elon said what he said and did what he did, I said, Elon Musk is the evil genius we need right now. And I'll just say this. I never want to say never. I never want to say never. I, there, it would be a, a small, tiny, teeny little chance that I might go back on Twitter if ownership completely changed, framework completely changed, my old account was reinstated along with every single person who was banned for absolutely no reason other than telling the truth. I would probably go back on, but it'll it, it's going to take a long shot. But yesterday morning... Elon Musk put out 
statements via his offer to buy Twitter. He said, uh, I invested in Twitter as I believe in its potential to be the platform for free speech around the globe. And I believe free speech is a societal imperative for a functioning democracy. I, I hate I hate when they say functioning democracy, like the left is always saying we have to protect our democracy. We do not live in a democracy. A direct democracy means that 51 percent of the people get to tell 49 percent of the people what the hell to do. And, and, and that's not where we are in this country. Um, we live in a republic, a constitutional republic, which means that we represent its representative government, not democracy. We vote in representatives who are supposed to do the will of, of their constituents. This is how it's supposed to work, guys. Isn't it amazing? Each representative in, is supposed to represent a small subsection of people so that they actually know what their people want when they go. And it's funny because that's how the Republican Party is organized in a large part, too. Each committee, each um, precinct, voting precinct, has a precinct committeeman and a, a leadership structure in it. And that precinct committeeman is supposed to do the will of the Republican constituents in their precinct, which are very small areas. Those precincts come up to the, to the county level, and they demand that their state EC, their county EC, the one who goes to the state, represents the will of their constituents. So it's sort of the same-ish way that the, it's how it's supposed to work. See, supposed to work. So anyway, I don't like any of that. Um, however, since making my investment, I now realize the company will neither thrive nor serve this societal imperative in its current form. Twitter needs to be transformed into a, as a private company. As a result, I'm offering to buy 100% of Twitter for $54.20 per share in cash, a 54% premium over the day before I began investing, and a 38% premium over the day before my investment was publicly announced. My offer is my best and final offer. If it's not accepted, I would need to reconsider my position as a shareholder. Twitter has extraordinary potential. I will unlock it. Now, I have a Matt Taibbi piece to go over with everyone today, but he says, as I indicated this weekend, I believe the company should be private to go through the changes that need to be made. After the past several days of thinking this over, I've decided I want to acquire the company and take it private. I'm going to send you guys an offer letter tonight. We'll be public in the morning. Are you available to chat? Best and final offer. I am not playing the back and forth game. I have moved straight to the end. It's a high price and your shareholders will love it. If the deal doesn't work, given that I don't have confidence in management, nor do I believe I can drive the necessary change in the public market, I would need to reconsider my position as a shareholder, which is basically game over for Twitter. <laughs> this is not a threat. It's simply not a good investment without the changes that need to be made. And those changes won't happen without taking the company private. My advisors and my team are available after you get the letter to answer any questions. There will be more detail in our public filings. After you review the letter and review the public filings, your team can call my family office with any questions. Hmm. So, of course, all of the all of the stuff that came out yesterday came out like so many pieces in the Washington Post. About how you can't um, have billionaires running such important things. Well, the, the Washington Post is owned by Amazon's Jeff Bezos, who they praised, praised before. And then the Saudi Arabian people came out. Um, Awalid Talal came out and said, uh, who is it? 
Yeah. Alouid Talal came out and said, um, I don't believe that the proposed offer comes close to the intrinsic value of Twitter, given its growth prospects. Being one of the largest and long-term shareholders of Twitter, we reject this offer. And then Elon Musk said, interesting, just two questions, if I may. How much of Twitter does the kingdom own, directly and indirectly? And what are the kingdom's views on journalistic freedom of speech? Hmm. Now, as a journalist who was censored from Twitter, as a journalist, I was censored from Twitter as a journalist with a small outlet. I want to talk about this Matt Taibbi column, because even though he is, quote, on the left, he writes a piece for um, TK News, his Stubstack, Stubstack, Substack. He says Elon Musk has reportedly attempted to purchase Twitter, and I have no idea whether his influence on the company would be positive or not. I do, however, know what other media figures think Musk's influence on Twitter will be. They think it will be bad, very bad, bad. How none of them see what a self-own this is, is beyond me. After spending the last six years practically turgid with joy as other unaccountable billionaires tweaked the speech landscape in their favor, they're suddenly howling over the mere rumor that a less censorious fat cat might get to sit in one of the big chairs. Oh, the inhumanity. It's true. They don't mind corporate oligarchs as long as they're authoritarian corporate oligarchs, you see. A few of the uh, more prominent Musk critics are claiming merely to be upset at the prospect of wealthy individuals controlling speech. As more than one person has pointed out, this is a bizarre thing to be worrying about of all all of the sudden, since it's been an absolute reality in America for a while. This tweet that he uh, put in here says, as someone who isn't a fan of Elon Musk, I still find it darkly funny that billionaire-owned media is suddenly having a moral panic about a billionaire possibly buying Twitter. Probably the funniest effort along these lines was the passage, we need regulation to prevent rich people from controlling our channels of communication. That was Ellen Powell, former CEO of Reddit, railing against Musk in the pages of the Washington Post, a newspaper owned by Jeff Bezos, complaining about rich people controlling channels of communication, just might be the never-released punchline of Monty Python's classic, funniest joke in the world skit. Lots of people went that way, says uh, Taibi, and I'm going to put this piece in the description or in the show notes so you can read it. But what he gets into is that it used to be that you could not find a journalist who was for censorship because the whole point of being a journalist was to make a lot of really powerful people uncomfortable with the truth that they would not want people to know. So therefore, the people could make informed decisions. Journalism was the fourth estate. It was the place that held everybody else accountable. It was media. It was it was the truth. It was integrity. It was all these things. Now, journalists, quote, are part of the intelligence agencies and the propaganda machine state-run media, in the, in, especially in the United States. Any media to the contrary is, is summarily destroyed by the same people that these folks are saying are good billionaires to own things. And then there's always the, well, Twitter's a private company. They can do whatever they want. Yeah, and they sure have. And now, since they are a private company, another man has come in and said, well, I want to buy up this private company. Thank you very much. And he has enough of a controlling stake that if he decides to not buy or to sell his shares of the private company, there's going to be a problem. Twitter will go out of business. Twitter will go bankrupt. And he knows it. And so... 
over the past couple days, there have been uh, like Vanguard, for example, who was it, it's basically a bunch of funds. It's not necessarily individual investors. They've j- jacked up their purchasing. Now, I personally am not a financial guru by any stretch of the imagination. And there are people that are way smarter than me. But part of me is like, OK, well, if they're a fund manager, Vanguard, which I think they are. And they're now taking their clients' money. I'm assuming they had to get permission from their clients to change the proportions of their funds in such a large way. Like if a client says, okay, I want X amount of percent of my investment in tech, did they just grab all their, sell other stuff and move their money into Twitter? Because that's a bad move, in my opinion, for these investors, the individual investor. Because what happens if they decide to sell? Like if Musk sells and the stock tanks, and Vanguard's got all this money in there now, then these clients are going to lose a lot of money. So I don't know. It's very interesting. But I'm watching it closely because, honestly, just the freak out of it all is great. I mean, I'm enjoying every minute of it. I love seeing these people scared and angry and stomping their feet like little teenager or toddlers, I'm sorry. So frustrated that, oh my gosh, some people could... Like, I, I... can peruse Twitter still using my band account. Okay. So I peruse it occasionally and I was perusing it the other day and it has turned into such a, how anybody is on that platform. There is no diversity of thought anymore. Any conservative blue check mark that's left. I'm kind of grossed out at you. And I would tell Mike the same thing if he were here and I have you're using Like, I don't get it. You're not changing anyone's mind on Twitter. You're not. I'm sorry. Like, again, I used to love it on Twitter because it was, it was, I was able to reach more people. I was able to reach more people. And I did a lot of good work and a lot of good work was done on Twitter. A lot of good work in its heyday, like back before it turned into even this bad of a censorship trap. But I don't have to worry about anything anymore. <laughs> I can say whatever I want. For example, um, on Truth Social or on Telegram even, or on CloudHub or on Gab or on Getter or on Parler, all of these platforms which I'm still existing on, I can post things that I, if I were to have posted on Twitter would have gotten me banned in a second. Even before all this nonsense, like I was very careful and precarious about my language. I don't have to do that anymore. I didn't mean to make this a whole big show on Twitter, but the whole point is I'm interested in what's going on here and I'm watching it. But as it stands right now, these splody heads and pretzel twists going on over there by these like these pinky out. I think I'm in the majority idiots on Twitter is hysterical because they do. Twitter is their world. Twitter is where they go to feel accepted. Twitter is where they go so they feel like they're authoritarian, disgusting, socially awkward perspective is the majority of America. And Twitter does a good job of making them feel that way. And as they've now found out, the majority of America thinks they're nuts. Look, look at what's happening to Disney. Majority of America thinks that 3% who have been amplified to seem like the biggest part of the biggest crowd in the room, they think they're nuts. Twitter's not real life. Just remember that. Even though Twitter's not real life, I came across some tweets yesterday that I shared without comment 
without comment. I just want to say that. All I said was interesting from Kim.com. Now, everybody has their perspective on this guy. Kim.com ran mega upload. He was um, attacked by the U.S. government for copyright infringement. Basically, they they froze all of his assets. They stole them. You can look into the story of Kim.com, but he worked very closely with Julian Assange. And back in the 2016 timeframe before Julian Assange started releasing all of the stuff on the DNC and the Podesta emails, he had foreshadowed that and was very clear that Julian Assange was going to be Hillary Clinton's worst nightmare in 2016. This was before any of that happened. He was right. Now, there have been plenty of things that he said that I guess have not panned out. I have not seen that since I've not been on Twitter, but... I'm just going to read to you what he says here. Now, I'm just going to say this. I do not know where I stand on this Hunter Biden laptop right now. Here's why. I don't know what copy is legit anymore. I don't know if the Jack Maxey copy is legit. I don't know if the Rudy Giuliani has the original that he got from the repairman. I don't know if the repairman has an original copy anymore or the actual hard drive. I guess the FBI has that. I don't know what iterations of data, what iterations or changes this data has gone through as it is passed through the hands of everybody it's passed through. I don't know what Maxie's working off of or anyone else for that matter. And there's no way for me to like verify that. So I have had a hands off approach to this laptop um, at least recently, like now, because I don't know and I can't prove. And so I'm just watching carefully. However, I do um, I do want to say that these these tweets I found interesting. Do I give them all the credibility that I have and I can muster and say this is what's going to happen? No, but I also am I'm 50-50 because I don't think that Kim.com would say some of the things he's just said and not have some sauce behind them. I don't know. I don't know. So again, I don't know. I'm just providing this information to the people who may not have seen it so that they can also put it in their bucket of things they ponder. Fair enough. I hope that that's enough of a disclaimer to say that I'm not endorsing what I'm about to read to you. I'm merely pre- presenting it for you. You're, you're pondering. Okay. He says, I work with the data forensics team that analyzes the Hunter Biden laptop data. That's what he said. Then he says, expect a major release soon. Now, I know the one thing that everybody's so pissed about, and me too, is like, we've been hearing this. We're, we're going to release everything. Well, just freaking do it already. I hate that. That's like the worst thing in the world where everyone's like, okay, on Monday at 12 p.m., out it comes. And then Monday, 12 p.m. comes and there's nothing. When people promise something by a certain day. So, for example, like Project Veritas will always say tomorrow at 8 p.m. That's fine. At 8 p.m. or sometimes 9 the next day, they always deliver. Always. That's fine. But this kind of stuff, I don't know. He says, expect a major release soon. The data reveals numerous crimes. Hunter Biden will go to jail. Joe Biden will resign. Then he says, I have history with Joe because Joe was in the Obama administration, I guess, when all this happened to him. Glad to help shutting him down. Hmm. Then he says in the next post, the Hunter Biden laptop data was provided to major media organizations months ago. Part of the plan is to name those who have received copies of the data and to expose them up for not acting on it and or covering it up. They are accomplices. They are aiding and abetting criminals. Now, the people I, I'm, I'm assuming the let me just let me lay this out. If I personally had received the data 
on the laptop drive, and it is what he's saying it is. As a reporter, if some random person had come to me and said, look, I've got this laptop, here it is. And if it was me personally, I don't have the resources or the team with something of such importance to verify the authenticity of that data. And a lot of it is criminal, clearly, from what he's saying, if we take him at face value. So given that that's the case, I don't know that I would have been able to publish it and stamp it as, okay, this is, I probably would have said, ah, we've done our best to verify the contents of this. Um, we're presenting it to the public with the with the caveat that we are not sure how much of this is is accurate and how much of it isn't, but we feel it is of such importance that the public deserves an opportunity to see it. That's probably how I would have ended up after many, 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 many sleepless nights toiling over it. Because if it's not, if it wasn't real, if I was approached with it and it wasn't real and then I published it, the, that's, that's just one of the most massive mistakes, horrible mistakes you can make. And I wouldn't be able to live with myself after that, honestly. So- from a journalist perspective. Now, I don't have the resources that these big newsrooms have. That's for damn sure. I don't. So I'm not saying this is why they didn't publish it. I'm just saying if I would have received it, that would have been my thought process likely. So I, I would love to see which newsrooms sat on this because it's been two years now. And by two years in, you have the ability to find a team to authenticate this stuff and then real, you know, understand whether it's real or not, which is, is with, the, with the right funding and the right people and the right connections to people who know what they're doing, you can do. And they should have published it because it's the public's right to know this stuff about their world leaders and their families. I hope this is all making sense. Anyway, um, I was instrumental, he says in ending the 2016 election hopes of Hillary Clinton with a courageous DNC whistleblower and WikiLeaks. The DNC whistleblower was Seth Rich, in my opinion, wink and a nod. Now I'm helping to expose the crimes of the Biden family. To others who were involved in the unlawful and corrupt destruction of Mega Upload, you're next. The Hunter Biden laptop data contains evidence of the worst kind of child abuse. One forensic analyst told me that he has to take frequent breaks because of how disgusting the evidence is. Did the spies and media that called this Russian disinformation assist a pedophile? I was I gave this interview to Bloomberg before WikiLeaks released DNC leaks and Podesta emails. Clearly, I was in the know when the Biden tribalist questioned my tweets about Hunter Biden's laptop data being released soon. Just show them this. I know it again. The Hunter Biden laptop data will be headline news next week. They cannot contain it or discredit it anymore. Stay tuned for updates. And then he says, to be clear, because of legal advice and the sensitive nature of the laptop data, I have refused to receive a copy. See, but I'm in daily contact with the forensic team in Switzerland. I tweeted what they told me. Tucker Carlson and his team are filming in Zurich today. One of the most concerning parts of the Hunter Biden laptop data is the involvement of the Biden family in Ukraine biolabs researching the genetical modification of deadly viruses to make them more transmissible to humans. It's the worst kind of research. It can kill millions. Presented to you without my comment on whether it's true or not. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know if Tucker Carlson's in Zurich. I have no idea. If Tucker Carlson is in Zurich, I doubt he wanted that to be made known by Kim.com. <laughs> I'm just saying. 
So I don't know. But one of the biggest problems with accepting that damn laptop data is that there's pedophilia on it, allegedly. And then you're a criminal. Then you're a criminal because you possess it. You see where the qualm is like you. I I just I can't ever take data like that. And and I couldn't anyway. And just be like, yeah, sure. Send it to me. I'll look at it. There's just a lack of responsibility in doing that. You, You could be set up that way. Like, it's so crazy out there, guys. So whenever I see like people yelling at people like you didn't talk about this, you're a deep state. I'm like, what? First of all, again, sometimes not talking about something is more telling than talking about it. And if I personally don't feel like something is 100 percent or credible, I'm not going to broadcast it to however many people follow me for information that they can trust if I don't believe a portion of it is credible. I don't care if it's a portion of it or the whole thing. If you are if you are presenting something and and let's just say 70 percent of it is true, but 30 percent of it is utter BS, then that 30 percent is being used to discredit the 70 percent. And I'm certainly not bringing my megaphone and flashlight on it so that no, I mean, I'd much rather take the truth and present it that way in my own way with my own fact checking, my own method then present to you something and say, well, listen, this part's BS and that part's BS. And he lied about this, but the rest of it's good. No, 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 no. That's how disinformation works. That's how disinformation or, you know, operations work. If they want to dis, if they want to, if they want to thoroughly discredit any one narrative, they will present that narrative through some messenger embedded within a whole bunch of ridiculous nonsense so then they can use that nonsense to also discredit the truthful part. And that's called the disinformation operation. Happens all the time, all the time. So I'm very choosy and careful about what I talk about. That all being said, let's see what happens next week. I am not under any, I don't know. I have no doubt at this point that they're trying to take Joe Biden down. The man today, yesterday, went to shake the hand of some ghost that was standing there next to him. He's not okay. As a matter of fact, there was another person who's not doing okay, apparently, and her name is Diane Feinstein. Diane Feinstein or Feinstein, however you want to say it. She's not doing well either. And we also have this guy who apparently is doing doing just fine health-wise. How concerning is the outbreak in China? We see the lockdown in Shanghai and the State Department now ordering families out, all non-essential workers out of Shanghai. Well, China has has a number of problems, two of which are that their complete lockdown, which was their approach, a strictest lockdown that you'd never be able to implement in the United States, although that prevents the spread of infection. And remember, early on... They were saying, and I think accurately, that they were doing better than almost anybody else. But lockdown has its consequences. You use lockdowns to get people vaccinated so that when you open up, you won't have a surge of infections. No, 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 no. Oh, no, for so many reasons. Oh, goodness. Can we break this down? So we have we have a Fauci who's basically saying imprison an entire nation in their homes so that you can force vaccinate them with non-sterilizing vaccines that don't work. Now we're going to get into this clip a little bit more where he admits that, but you can't, this is, this is utter nonsense. The vaccines don't even work. There have been, there have been no 
good vaccines for a virus like this ever. And I'm going to get to something from Vandenbosch in a minute that is is a little bit alarming to me. And again, I hesitated when he originally came out to share his information because it seemed so devastating that I didn't want to purvey it to my audience and then it not be real. I'm not a fear porn person. I just don't do it. I'm not. So I'm going to go into the, the latest paper because he's been right on, on a lot of stuff so far. And I want to just say what he's what he's positing now, um, given the data that we have from COVID around the world. So basically, Fauci's a tyrant. And next, what he says next, again. It's because you're dealing with an immunologically naive population to the virus because they've not really been exposed because of the lockdown. So what he just admitted was that natural immunity is a thing. You have not been exposed to the virus. You're you're naive to it. Immunologically. Immunologically. (laughs) Naive. Naive to this virus. So we'll vaccinate you because your body has never seen it before. So what does that mean for people who have seen it before, Dr. Fauci? Does that mean that they've got natural immunity? Hmm. The problem is that the vaccines that they've been using are not nearly as effective as the vaccines that are used in the United States, the UK, EU and other places. Which is terrifying because the vaccines used here aren't effective either at all. At all. They're not effective at all. They don't do anything. Oh, well, they they were never meant to stop infection. Yes, they were. That's what they were meant for. They were just meant to make it so that the disease course was milder. So they're a therapeutic. It's milder right now in Omicron. But I just want to talk about some of what Vanden Bosch said in his latest paper, which is 46 pages of scientific information and analysis that is a little bit above my head in terms of immunology. So I can't. Given what I've learned along the way, I can understand broadly what he's talking about. But he does have some conclusions that I wanted to read to you. Um, he he says, this is what Vanden Bosch says. Just trying to pull it up here. He says, I key message. I seriously expect that a series of new, highly virulent and highly infectious SARS-CoV-2 variants are will now rapidly and independently emerge in highly vaccinated countries all over the world and that they will soon spread at a high pace. I expect the current pattern of repetitive infections and relatively mild disease in vaccinees to soon aggravate and be replaced by severe de- disease and death. Unfortunately, there is no way vaccinees can re- rely on assistance from their innate immune system to protect against coronaviruses as their relevant innate IgM antibodies are increasingly being outcompeted by infection-enhancing vaccinal ABS, which are continually recalled due to the circulation of the highly infectious Omicron variants. In contrast, Omicron's high infectiousness would enable the non-vaccinated to train their innate immune defense against SARS-CoV-2, while the infectious and pathogenic capacity of the new variants would be debilitated in the non-vaccinated for lack of infection-enhancing ABS in their blood. Unless we immediately implement large-scale antiviral prophylaxis campaigns in highly vaccinated countries, there shall be no doubt that the pandemic will end while taking a huge toll on human lives. Now, that is the extreme. That is the extreme. But he has data 
in, in the form of what's happening in infected now as Omicron mutates. So we had Omicron one, there's Omicron two, and now there's another Omicron. I don't know if you guys have really heard about this one because it's not really Omicron anymore. It's something different, but they're not giving it its own Greek letter. They don't want to do that. Don't ask me why. Have no idea. Um, it is it is doing exactly what Vandenbosch is saying here. It's it's mutating around the and and boosters are 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 exacerbating the problem. And he says now, like there was a thought that he says in the paper that if you just kept boosting, that you would enable the body to protect against, protect against, protect against, because they they're getting that flood of of immune response. But that's actually having the opposite effect. Um, conclusion. Mass vaccination has prevented a sound balance between viral infectiousness and natural immunity that would normally have developed during a natural pandemic as an overall trait of evolution enabling host populations to effectively control viral infection and transmission while leaving the virus a chance to perpetuate. To drive the virus into endemic phases and maintain such a sound equilibrium between viral infectivity and population level immunity. Natural immunity is key as it is the only way to achieve herd immunity during a pandemic. Now he goes in detail in this 46 pages, which I'll again provide for you in the show notes today, which is they're always below the show on whatever platform you're listening to it on. So if you're on Spotify, it's in there in the show description. If you're on, you know, Apple podcast, it's in there. Google, same thing. They're always there. And there's tons of links in there usually for you that has source materials and other stuff from the show. So you can go in there and find things. Um, He talks about how one of the hopes that we had was children to stop this from happening to humanity. Um, But because we're increasingly assaulting children with this now and it's getting younger and younger, that reservoir in quotes that we had is is disappearing because these kids are getting vaccinated or injected with this. And there's no signs of I mean, there's just no signs of stopping there. They're ramping it up again in California. It's 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 crazy. It says, whereas a natural pandemic naturally results in herd immunity, a pandemic that is disturbed by mass vaccination campaigns that are unable to cut the chain of viral transmission will eventually enable the virus to fully resist the vaccine-induced immune response. As a result of mounting population-level immune pressure on viral infectiousness, i.e. caused by vaccinal anti-RBD-ABS, the virus will, in a first step, escape from the potentially neutralizing ABS and rise its level of infectiousness, which is called ADEI, antibody-dependent enhancement infectiousness. This is now translated in the dominant circulation of Omicron, which is highly infectious and largely resistant to potentially neutralizing vaccinal antibodies. It goes on. As a result of the increasing immune pressure that highly vaccinated populations are now exerting on C-type lectin-mediated viral trans infectiousness, i.e. caused by non-neutralizing, enhancing anti-NTD ABS, I hope that this is being translated properly. Basically, the vaccinated population is exerting immune pressure on the virus and certain proteins and lectins inside of it and causing it to be more infectious. Um, The virus will, in a next step, most likely evolve to also increase its virulence, thereby causing a dramatic rise in cases of severe disease and death in vaccinees. I hope this is bullshit. Sorry to curse. I hope it's nonsense. 
I almost don't even want to say this out loud. As the mechanisms of enhancement of infection and disease are mediated by binding of non-neutralizing antibodies directed at a conserved site on the spike protein, the occurrence of ADEI and ADED will be particularly pronounced in highly vaccinated, highly boosted populations exposed to a new variant that is largely resistant to the vaccine ABS or antibodies that potentially inhibit viral infection. In the non-vaccinated, however, Omicron is boosting instead of compromising their innate immune defense against COVID, including all current and future variants. The type of mutations that the upcoming upcoming new variants are likely to incorporate um, to adapt to the immune pressure that highly vaccinated populations are now placing on the virulence or pathogenicity. Oh, God, I know how to say the word. You get it of the virus <laughs> are likely to cause steric hindrance to both viral entry and trans infection in the non-vaccinated for lack of enhancing antibodies, i.e. the unvaccinated don't have the enhancing antibodies that the vaccinated do that are allowing this virus to be as deadly as it is. I hope I hope I'm translating this properly. Um the part of the population, this part of the population would therefore be spared from the enhanced susceptibility to ADEI and ADED. So he's explaining why it is that unvaccinated can handle Omicron and future variants, whereas the vaccinated will not likely be able to. Um, and the the reason why um, I'm thinking that I'm I'm presenting this to you is because he he did not always have such a po- positive outlook for the unvaccinated. There was really no I no no data to be able to determine what would happen to the unvaccinated as the vaccinated drove this mutation um, and drove this immune pressure on the virus. So given that that's the case and given we have data now and we have serum study and we have all kinds of other stuff that he cites in his paper to be able to see what happens to unvaccinated as they encounter each variant of this and what their immune system does, how it works, what what kind of antibodies it creates, etc. He can now basically state the unvaccinated are okay. Um, given the intrinsic debilitation of viral infectiousness and pathogenicity, even the more vulnerable among the unvaccinated would be less likely to contract severe disease upon viral exposure, whereas they would be more likely to develop broadly cross-protective antibodies. To restore a sound balance that benefits both the viral and human population, it is paramount that either the viral infectious pressure or population-level immune pressure gets dramatically reduced as both have become intrinsically linked in a highly vaccinated population, it suffices to either lower the infectious pressure or the immune pressure to reach that goal. Lowering the infectious pressure in highly vaccinated populations could only be achieved by mankind conducting large-scale antiviral chemoprophylaxis campaigns. If man fails to do so, there is no doubt that the virus will take care of lowering the immune pressure in these populations. Now, I'm going to say something that I, 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 I know how ivermectin works to the contrary of everybody telling people that ivermectin doesn't work and all these crap studies. I never understood why they would want to disprove a life-saving medication that has helped millions of people around the world in so many ways, including with cancer. We'll talk about that another day. And myself, to be honest, um, maybe next episode we'll get into that, how ivermectin has helped me outside of COVID. But um, so ivermectin, I'm going to ask my doctor friends to confirm this for me, but it, it doesn't necessarily rely on your immune system 
What it does is it blocks the spike protein from being able to connect and into a cell and replicate. So I wonder if ivermectin would be beneficial for vaccinated who have gotten COVID in the situation that Vandenbosch is talking about here, even though they've completely trashed their immune system at this point. And U.S. mortality, um, that, that account, the person who runs it, has been able to do analysis on the excess death statistics in the U.K., which we all know how that turned out not well for vaccinated people. And I, I mean, it kills me because I can, I'm going to tell you, most vaccinated people who get sick with COVID are not going to take ivermectin because they've been conditioned to think that it's the devil, where, whereas they've injected themselves with the devil. I'll put this paper in the show notes and you guys can read it yourself and go from there. And I'm going to end the, the show today on um, a piece that Wendy uh, just wrote for us. It just published today. It's called Audacious Philanthropy quote, socially conscious, not in profits, collaborate. This came out of the last piece that she did about how everybody's announced that they're, you know, this, that they're not doing, um, they're not doing funding of the elections anymore with private money. It's all going to be not for profits. I'll put both of these in the description box, but the audacious project is one of them that's running the left's money machine into the 2022 elections in the 2024 elections. And I said, I need to know more about Audacious. And she said, I'm going to do some research. And she did. And it's something else. It starts, the Audacious Project is a little known philanthropic nonprofit collaborative that funded the U.S. Alliance for Election Excellence to the tune of $80 million. The U.S. Alliance for Election Excellence is the newest election administration brainchild coming out of an organization known as the Center for Tech and Civic Life. CTCL played a prominent role in funding local elections in critical areas in the 2020 election, arguably tipping the presidential election in favor of Joe Biden. Focusing on a social impact projects, the Audacious Project is housed at the Idea Factory organization called TED and is run by the TED Prize team. The TED Prize team has spent 16 years identifying some of the world's most gifted change makers and scaling their imagination beyond their work. TED Prize team member Anna Verghese is the executive director of the Audacious Project. First announced in April of 2018, the Audacious Project had already attracted $250 million in financial commitments from a coalition of individuals and organizations who are committed to funding and realizing ideas that matter, in quotes. The project represents a relatively new model of philanthropic fundraising aimed at making it easier for social change nonprofits and social entrepreneurs to secure the funding they need to realize their dreams. TED curator Chris Anderson explains that the fundraising structure and launch plan in his blog after the 2018 announcement. He says, we would like to suggest a new approach we're calling the Audacious Project, the result of four years of dreaming and experimentation with an extraordinary group of collaborators. You can think of it as an attempt to imagine what an IPO for the nonprofit world might look like, or simply as a thrilling way for private individuals to pool resources and work together in service of entrepreneurs who could change the world. Change the world in a social justice way by interfering in, in, in free elections. Yeah, maybe. Anderson then goes on to explain the three ingredients needed to power the project. One, invite the world's greatest change agents to dream like they've never dreamed before, to create ideas that are truly audacious, ideas that truly might impact millions or even hundreds of millions of people or have environmental impact at planetary scale or can be transformative for science, 
or for our long-term prospects of surviving and flourishing, vet the ideas, offer a path to execute them, pick the best of them and help shape them into actionable multi-year plans that are viable and sustainable, and then present them to the world in a single moment with as much visibility and excitement as possible and invite people to support them together. And she goes on and she talks about the connection to the Bridgespan Group and the money involved. It's it's an amazing piece of journalism. Please, please, please take some time to read this amazing piece, which will be in the show notes below. And that's it for me today. I'm spent. I hope you enjoyed the solo podcast. We'll be back on Monday. You have been listening to the Dark to Light podcast with Beans. I want to wish everybody a very happy Easter this Sunday. And um, please um, enjoy the time. Um celebrating and praying because God is very important right now. And um, we will be back on Monday. You can hear us every Monday, Wednesday, or Friday at 2.30 Eastern Time at TuneIn, Stitcher, Apple, iTunes, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, or RadioInfluence.com. And we're done. I'm Jerry Petock, CEO of Radio Influence. I just wanted to take a quick moment to say thank you for downloading and subscribing to this podcast. There are a lot of people behind the scenes here at Radio Influence that work hard to keep you entertained day in and day out. If you'd like to get involved and advertise on this program, or you have some show ideas that you'd like to see us add to the Radio Influence family, please email us at contact at radioinfluence.com. We all have crazy schedules, so the fact that you took time out of your busy day to let us entertain you for a while means a lot. Without you, the listeners, we wouldn't exist. So thank you again for downloading and subscribing to this show. Don't forget to check out RadioInfluence.com to see what other shows we also have to offer. All of Radio Influence's programming can be found on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, Google Play, and of course, RadioInfluence.com. Radio Influence.